unidentifiable flying object. UFO continues to be a mystery. Wasn't alone in space. Sightings of UFOs. Something out there. Close enough to be observed. What could it be? It could only be one thing. A UFO. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of UFO No. I am your wannabe ufologist slash believer, skeptic, you name it, I'm Ben. Welcome to the show. This is your break from the propaganda, the bad news, the treasonous politicians. Time to get elevated and have a conversation with Floyd Wills. Floyd Wills is an author and researcher of the book, The Red Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries. We had a phenomenal conversation. I mean, we went everything from the Nephilim, which are the giants mentioned in the Bible, talked about uh, a bunch of anomalous archaeological things, giant human skeletons, elongated skulls from Peru, unexplained artifacts. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. We went, we went through the gambit on as well as talking about ancient cultures, ancient technology, it was such a fun conversation. I had a blast, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. I'm in the stratosphere, cruising about 96,000 feet. It's been it's been around there lately. Uh, it's clear skies, baby. If you like the show, be sure to share this episode. Give a nice review. Five stars. Looks amazingly amazing next to all the rest. Make sure and hit that subscribe and follow button if you're on the YouTubes, the Rumbles. Uh, that way you don't miss a single episode. We do these weekly, so tune in. Catch them as they come out. Um, and you could support the podcast in a number of ways, all in the description. We're doing like a, a value for value type of thing that was... Uh, Founded by the pod father, Adam Curry, in which uh, time, talent, and treasure. Any of those that you can donate, it helps add value to the show, helps the show grow. Um, So time, anything you can add, talent, any skills you might have, and of course, treasure. Uh, If we make you laugh, if we make you think, throw that into a number and then toss it our way. We appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. If you have stories, experiences, you just want to reach out, make sure and call or text 208-477-1288. You can also email I want to believe 115 at gmail.com because I want to hear from y'all and I want to get your stories. And if you want to be on and you want to talk, let's have a little conversation and figure that out. Um, otherwise, again, all the links are in the show notes. All the descriptions show you how to ways to support the podcast, follow the podcast. Remember, sharing is caring, so splash us around, spread us like gossip. But without further ado, I bring to you Floyd Wills. Yeah. So nice to meet you. I, uh, I've been uh, looking into your book. I haven't read it, I have to admit, but uh, yeah. I've been looking into it. And I watched uh, a couple of the interviews you've done with some other people. Phenomenal stuff. Okay. You're so knowledgeable. Um, and so that's what I what I really wanted to pick your brain about. But um, so first, because um, I'm just, we're just going. Um, but uh, so first, tell everybody, um, and myself included, uh, who you are, a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Uh, well, first off, thanks again for having me on your show, Ben, and I appreciate you and your audience for having me on. Uh, my name is Floyd Wills. Um, I've lived a good portion of my life in Portland, Oregon, 
grew up there and um, moved across the river to Washington State. That's where I'm at now. I've been out here a few years in a beautiful little city um, called Washougal. They call it Gateway to the Gorge. It's, it's just really, really beautiful. Um, I work for a major transportation company in Portland. That's my day job. Um, I'm currently pursuing a master's degree in clinical counseling. I eventually want to transition uh, into that field. I've always had a fascination with psychology. Um, I have a background in uh, hypnosis and neurolinguistic psychology. Um, but ever since I was young, you know, my, my real passion, aside from uh, human development, is um, ancient mysteries. And that started from when I was a very young boy back in the 80s growing up. Um, ben, I don't know if you remember this show, In Search Of, with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fan- phenomenal show. Phenomenal show. And that really piqued my interest. You know, talk about the Great Pyramids and Atlantis and UFOs and, and paranormal uh, phenomenon. And just as a boy, I was fascinated with that. And that kind of stuck with me. And uh, yeah, I just was fascinated with ancient mysteries. And it just it, it stuck with me into adulthood. And I ended up uh, traveling overseas uh, for a period of time. I was really interested in researching the Knights Templar and the Freemason, that led me to the Freemasons, and I ended up over at Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. I've been to Chartres Cathedral, which was a, 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 t- a Templar cathedral that was constructed outside of Paris. Um, I've been to the pyramids in Mexico, Teotihuacan, uh, Chichen Itza, uh, ended up on the Canary Islands of all places, and, and uh, my first visit there realized that they had some mysterious pyramids on the Canary Islands, the pyramids of Guaymar. And so I explored those, and it just seemed like wherever I went, like um, I was, I was researching these mysterious places, uh, sacred sites, that type of thing. So did, and that led you to write your book, or was it? What, did your book come first? Um, no, that just the general interest in ancient mysteries um, led me to write my book. Um, now. My book, The Red-Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries, kind of the central story of that focuses on the giants, but there's a lot of other subjects. I get into the ET races. I get into the little people in my process of discovering um, these uh, old accounts of giant skeleton discoveries in North America. It led me to these little people discoveries as well. So I I take a bunch of twists and turns and get into the um, elongated skulls of Peru, and it led me to to the Nazca mummies. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with that subject. Very fascinating. I'm familiar with Um, the Nazca lines, right? Okay, these are the Nazca mummies. The mummies. Uh, So is that the same area? It's the same area, yes. Nazca, Peru, around that area, and another area called Paracas. But yeah, so my book just doesn't focus on giants, although that's the kind of the central theme to it. it. It branches off into a lot of other ancient mysteries at all. But to start off with the whole, what got me interested in the giants, I picked up a book uh, back in the 80s. It was called um, Giants. It was by an author, David Larkin. And it had beautiful illustrations and paintings of giants and drawings and just talked about a lot of mythologies uh, throughout different cultures of giants. And I remember in that book, at the very beginning of it, it references the Genesis 6 account in the Bible, which basically says, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, um, you know, there were giants in the earth in those days and thereafter when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore them children, 
and they became mighty men, men of renown. And as a kid, I was thinking, wow, that's kind of trippy. That's really interesting. I didn't know much about the Bible back then, but it kind of that kind of stuck with me. Of course, I had heard of Goliath, yeah. you know, the tales of Goliath in the Bible, but I didn't didn't know much uh, anything about the Nephilim or anything like that. And it wasn't until probably seven or eight years ago I heard a presentation by a researcher named Jim Vieira who does a lot of research into giant skeleton discoveries. And I was captivated. He kept referencing um, these old newspaper articles on giant skeleton discoveries, and I thought, wow, that is amazing. Could this be true? So I started looking into it myself, and I started digging up a lot of these old newspaper accounts, going into these old newspaper databases online, and compiling these, um, these articles. And they just kept piling up and piling up and piling up. And I came across a particular story of giants that absolutely fascinated me, Ben, uh, because there was uh, actual photographic uh, evidence, and there's actually some of the artifacts that came out of this cave you can still see to this day. And that's the Lovelock Cave, which is in Lovelock, Nevada. Now, the, the uh, northern Paiutes of that area have in their oral tradition that there were a race of giants that lived in that area, and they, they had red hair. And they were very violent. They were cannibalistic. They attacked the other tribe members, and they would, they would eat them. They would eat their victims. They wow. even wore um, bones, and they decorated their hair with red hair with bones, and um, they were just, they were not, uh, not nice people. So, oh, go ahead. No, I was just laughing because oh, you said okay. they were not nice people. Clearly, they were not definitely nice cannibalistic. Uh, they were cannibalistic. Uh, yeah, denotes yeah, kind the... Of like, uh, kind of invite you to dinner, right? Invite <laughs> you to dinner, and then you're the main course. Yeah, exactly. Thing, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So there are stories of these giants even digging like pit traps to, to, to trap people. Wow. Um, yeah, they were very evil, very evil people. Finally, the, the Paiutes got tired of this, and they banded together with uh, other local tribes, and they waged war on these giants, which lasted for three years. And the final battle culminated at an area called Lovelock Cave where they cornered the, the remaining giants there. And what they did is the Paiutes threw brush in front of the cave, and they lit flaming arrows. And they basically gave these giants an ultimatum. They said, why don't you live like men? Why, you know, stop doing what you're doing. And they didn't get any response from the giants, and they basically lit the brush on fire and burnt the giants to death. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, in the Paiute tales, uh, you know, some of the giants, you know, could have, could have escaped, could have left. Sure. Um, so, yeah, and so it was in 1911 that there was a couple of guano miners, and guano is basically bat poop, that were mining uh, in Lovelock Cave, and they discovered some artifacts, they discovered some skeletal remains, and they immediately called in the local university, uh, which came in and did a number of excava excavations there, uh, one in 1912 and later in 1924, and I think there was another one done back in the 60s, but they pulled out over 10,000 artifacts out of this cave, duck decoys, um, tools, duck weapons, decoys? duck decoys. Um, you can still look it up uh, online, the duck decoys that came out of Lovelock Cave. In fact, you can actually go to the Nevada State Museum and see, um, you know, you can see replicas of these things. And they were made um, out of tule, which is like a water plant. 
and just beautifully constructed. And uh, even one of the anthropologists, Gene Hattori, what I, I was communicating with him uh, for a while, you know, regarding the red-haired giants, and and it, I saw an article he wrote on the duck decoys, and it's, he said these are even much more beautiful than even would be necessary for wow. a, to make a duck decoy. So they had some really unique um, artifacts that came out. Another uh, uh, other artifacts that came out that were very interesting was a tule sandal that measured uh, 17 inches long. Now, to, to give you an idea, a 17-inch long foot, if we were to translate that to shoe size, that would translate to about a size 29 shoe, wow. which, I, which I believe is bigger than any um, you know, professional basketball player foot yeah. you know, that is recorded. So that, that fit a very, very enormous foot. Also, so you, oh, go, oh ahead. go ahead. No, go, continue. Yeah. Well, you had said that uh, they also found skeletal remains. They found skeletal remains, but the thing about this is that some of the artifacts uh, were distributed to uh, several museums. However, the skeletons disappeared, uh, right? The skeletons okay. disappeared. The records of the skeletons disappeared. Allegedly, some of the skeletons were very large, and some of them still had red hair attached to the skulls. Was that... Now, what, uh, was that part of the Smithsonian deal? Some people believe. Some people believe that it that it is. It's it's a cover up by the Smithsonian Institution. Well, wasn't um, there a U.S. Supreme Court order of some kind that they had to come out and give records if they had ever destroyed or hidden bones, and they had to admit that they had? Was that a real thing? Because I had heard that. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure, Ben, if that was a real thing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that was, um, you know, it would be all that would be fantastic. I would think they, there'd be would, more that would come out if they were court ordered to give up evidence. We'd hear a lot, maybe. I mean, these days, yeah. who knows? But I, I know you look at our whole system now and it's, it's kind of like, well, yeah. I, but there's a lot sure. of evidence throughout even history of of cultures uh, hiding evidence of another culture, destroying evidence of another culture. Information is power. Information. Uh, you, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, Ben, um, because, look, if you control if you control the past, you control the future. Right. Yep. Yep. And if you control the future. I mean, if you control the present, you control the past, right? Yeah. So absolutely. it's all about control. And we see history being rewritten right now. Look at all the statues being pulled down and uh, things being uh, censored and that type of thing. So we are witnessing that right now. So it's, yeah, it's happened throughout, throughout history. Yeah. And so these skeletons disappeared. However, allegedly there were some skulls that either that came out of Lovelock Cave or skulls that were found within that vicinity that ended up in a small museum called Humboldt Museum. And they were there for decades. And what was interesting, Ben, is that they didn't they didn't display them to the public. They kept them in the basement. Uh, and if you wanted to yeah, if you wanted to see these skulls, you had to ask and then the curator would would take you down in the basement and show you the skulls. So the question is, why weren't these skulls ever put on public display? Why were they kept in the basement? Is now, that no a common longer... sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. Um, um, yeah, so it's very unusual. No, go go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, is that a common practice with museums and, and I guess, artifact collection institutions that do this? Is that a common practice to withhold um, I, evidence is the only other way to describe it? Um, yeah. Separate from the public? What, 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 
it was there a a reason why that started or was it just has that always been a part of the institution that they're going to withhold certain things and show the public certain other things that's a fantastic question and i do address that in my book um, okay. going back to the uh to the origins the founding of the smithsonian institution in fact a lot of people don't know but the the money that was used to found that institution actually came from england there was a gentleman by the name of James Smithson that left that money. If he didn't have any heirs to donate that money to, he wanted the Smithsonian Institution to be founded, and that was donated to the United States to found the Smithsonian. Smithsonian's, I think, one of the largest in uh, you know museums in the so. world. Yeah, it's one of the. They have the largest collection, and they're so the most happened, credible as far as you know in in culture. They're considered the credible source of. Uh, of artifacts and, and ancient culture. Exactly. Exactly. I think they have like over like nine museums, uh, huge museums, maybe even more. Um, but yeah, they have millions and millions of artifacts and skeletal remains. And just think about it, Ben, only a very small percentage of what they have is ever shown in the museums. Mm. So my goodness, what what's some of the other stuff that they haven't put in the museums? I mean, what is that? Well, I the heard you in one of your other interviews reference the, uh, I think it was you that referenced the Indiana Jones, uh, where they they just shove something in the warehouse with the Ark. Um, it just shows that just a massive, uh, an airplane hangar of, of rows of stuff. Um, and so, so that's a reality. So, yeah, it's very true. Um, yeah, I, in fact, one of the chapters in my book on that subject is we have our top men working on it. Yes. Because that was, the, that was the answer that Indiana Jones got. He said, where's the Ark? Oh, don't worry. We've got our top men working on it. And then it shows the scene. They're just sticking this thing in a crate. Yeah. And then they're, they're hauling it off to this big warehouse with all these other artifacts. Uh, so it, the, the early foundings of the Smithsonian Institution, um, there was um, a gentleman by the name of John Wesley Powell, he was very influential in the founding of the Smithsonian Institution. And basically he came out with a doctrine early on in the you know, 1800s, mid-1800s when it was founded. And basically it was called the Powell Doctrine. And he, he basically said, look, if there are any artifa ancient uh, artifacts or remains that are found in North America, they basically they have to be, they have to be of Native American origin. They can't be from any other advanced civilization in any other part of the world. It just, it can't be. And so they're, they're either fake or they're planted. And so from an early time, they established this dogma that's basically saying, if there's anything that we find that contradicts what we tell you to believe, just ignore it. It's not real. It's fake. Um, and you said that was the 1800s? That was like, yeah, like the late, uh, mid to late 18, 1800s. Like, so from a very, very um, early time period. And, and just think, you know, um, I talk about knowledge filtration. And basically knowledge filtration is like, you know, you're taught a certain, you're taught a certain system, a certain belief system. And anything that doesn't fit within that belief system or that ideology, you just you're trained to filter it out like, OK, this is that doesn't fit in our box here. So, you know, we're going to ignore it. We're going to discredit it. And we, we see that in a lot of these discoveries that if it doesn't fit with the mainstream, that um, it's just discredited. 
And you know? we didn't know shit in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. I mean, compared to what we have now, the technology that can be used to I mean, LIDAR for one has yes. has expanded what we can do without even having to dig uh, uh, to be able to find things. So it's it's unbelievable to think that since the late eighteen hundreds roughly, there has been this throttling maneuver to keep any no, any new things that really, I mean, this is the biggest question that has plagued humanity. Where do we come from? Who are Absolutely. we? Yes. I mean, you know, that's the biggest question to me. That is, that's what connects everything. UFOs, paranormal, ancient, everything is that the question of, well, who are we in the scheme of all these things that we're clearly surrounded by? Um, and so that to to have this answer with clearly withheld from us, the evidence not even the answer, just the just the evidence to make our own conclusions has been withheld from us since that long ago just blows my mind. It, not that I'm surprised per se, yeah. but it's just it's it's still shocking to think how how much we how much further we could be as humanity if we ha- hadn't been throttled our knowledge. You're absolutely correct. And again, it's all about control. It's all about control. Who controls the knowledge? You know, they, they use that to, to manipulate and, and control us. I mean, look, this is a more recent example. When I mentioned the Nazca mummies and I talk about them in my book, uh, this was a fairly recent discovery, I think going back to like 2017. Uh, in Nazca, Peru, um, these haqueros, which basically is an, a tomb robbers in Peru, they found these mummies, and they were so extraordinary. They looked so different from anything that they had ever found before that instead of putting them on the black market to where they could make a lot of money, they, ac- they actually brought it to an archaeologist from France that was doing work over there and said, look, you know, we think these are so important and they need to be studied that we're going to turn these over to you, which I thought was astounding. And these mummies consist of, um, some of them look reptilian. Um, there's one, one of the first ones that was revealed, they named her Maria. She has elongated skull, no, uh, no nose, no ears, very long arms, three fingers on the hands, three fingers on the toes, um, there are other uh, hybrids of these mummies that, again, look look. Um, some of them look like a like a cross between a human and a, and a reptilian. Um, some of them look just very alien in appearance. And they've been studying these mummies since 2017, doing DNA testing. They found that elements of their DNA match no known species on this planet. They've done X-rays. They've done bone scans. And the scientists are saying, look, like these ancient people, you know, these are thousands of years old. These ancient peoples could not have been sophisticated enough to slap together some animal bones and some ancient human bones to make these things up. We don't have any evidence of any scarring, any cutting on the mummies to indicate any of this. And what motivation would they have to cut up uh, and add to it for what? To To just throw future cultures off the trail like what what incentive precisely precisely you know and you brought Um, up another good point is that mm -hmm. these grave robbers had more of a conscience and weight for the evidence of humanity than the institution of the smithsonian bingo that these people who were 
it's despicable to be a grave robber at least had the weight of knowing that what they had in their hands was valuable to humanity. They had enough sense to think outside of themselves. It's just incredible to think that the people that are in charge of this for us have less integrity than a grave robber. Than a grave robber. You you nailed it. You Crazy. nailed it. And and actually, there's been a lot of controversy. If you look into it, I think it's called the Inakari Institute, or is the institute that that have the mummies and that are studying these mummies. They actually, gave me permission to use some of their research in my book and some of the the photos of these mummies. In fact, if I travel anywhere in the world again, I would love to go to Peru and I would love to actually see these mummies because they've been under attack by the archaeologists. Mainstream archaeologists have been coming at them. Oh, these have to be fake. You're desecrating these ancient cultures, and they mixed human bones with animal bones and, you know, uh, giving them the runaround. And basically they have these doctors, these people doing DNA tests and said, look, this is the evidence. This is what this is what we have. And, and these point to the fact that these – these are authentic. These are real. These were a, a race of people. We don't know anything about them. Um, could they be extraterrestrial? Well, they most certainly, if you look at some of these mummies, um, they definitely look extraterrestrial, but not necessarily. I mean, could they be some other species that have been on this planet that maybe we haven't discovered? I don't know. I present a couple different theories in my book, but nothing definite to say, absolutely, this is what these are. You know, I explore, you know, could these be ETs? Most definitely. Could they be um, from this planet? That's a possibility as well. Now, one interesting thing about the Nazca mummies is there was a, um, a scientist, I think he was a paleontologist back in the 80s. He was from Canada, and he basically speculated, he had a theory that if the dinosaurs had not been killed off, from the, the giant uh, asteroid 65 million years ago, that at least some of them uh, would have evolved into a humanoid. Mm. And particularly the smaller dinosaurs, they were called taradons. They were, you know, kind of like, I don't know, they looked like little kind of mini, almost T-Rex type oh, dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, and he actually had this theory that they would have evolved into um, a humanoid very kind of similar in some ways to us. And he actually had a statue constructed of what he, he theorized uh, would have what these things would have looked like, and he called them uh, dinosaurid. And I remember I had a book on dinosaurs when I was a kid, and it actually had that picture of a dinosaurid in there. And I thought, wow, that looks, that looks really interesting. And then when I was doing my research into the Nazca mummies, I remember I flash back to what I saw in the book as a kid and I actually I actually pulled that picture back up and compared his statue with one of the Nazca mummies of what's called Maria and they look very similar. Wow. They have the three fingers, they have the big eyes, they have what, no external sexual organs to them. And I just thought wow, our ancient history, our prehistoric history, it's it's not I, it's not such a neat thing in a box. No, it's very very messy and it's very mysterious, and we're still learning about it. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. Well, the time frame, the time frame you're talking about from the dinosaurs 65 million years ago when they were wiped mm -hmm. out. Right. So who knows how long they existed prior to that, right? Uh, so you have so much time between that and and now that. 
and, and there's so little. I mean, when even even in the big chunks that we talk about humanity, hundreds of thousands of years, the structures that we're finding a million years, mm-hmm. things like that, it's still, it's still not even getting close to to that the 65 million mark when supposedly the dinosaurs were wiped out. It's what do you think about um, the theories that have come out of? I guess it would be. Uh, the study of dinosaur bones that have said that it was likely they evolved that if they did survive, they evolved into birds. Have you heard that? I have heard that. Um, Cause that's they're very the, uh, interesting. Yeah. So like they, they reference you know, the uh, specifically the T-Rex, the small arms that could easily turn into, mm-hmm. to wings, things like that. Um, which I don't, yeah. I don't even, I, I don't, no, I'm I'm dumbass, so I have no idea. Me too. What... When it comes to that, it comes to that stuff. Yeah, I have heard that, and and honestly, um, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that something like a T Rex could end up being something like a bird. Yeah. You know, I just don't. I don't know. But what's fascinating, though, is that when you look throughout look throughout history, I mean, we have so many legends of dragons. Of course. You know, dragons and in, in throughout Europe, you know, dragons like the old story of the knight going to, you know, hunt down the dragon to to save the, the damsel in distress. And you have, you know, uh, this the, the dragons in China mm-hmm. and how their view of the dragons that they were good. Yeah. And that the. They, they were good and that even like the, the some of the royal families of China, of ancient China, they had descended from the dragon blood, the dragon bloodline. And then you, you go into places like India and they talk about um, the serpent and they, they have uh, they talk about the Nagas in their, their, their mythology, you know, part human and part snake. And even some of the royal families of India claim descendancy to the to the nagas that supposedly had these ancient cities underground and they uh, they were keepers of this sacred knowledge i find it very fascinating that throughout all these different cultures you have mentions of dragons and even when i was in mexico um i had traveled there a number of years ago i had met a gentleman uh, by the name of dr charles spurgeon um, unfortunately he passed away probably uh, eight or nine years ago um, really interesting gentleman. He was a, a, a theologian, a u- ufologist, and uh, just a really neat guy. In fact, he shared with me some of his research on the Nephilim, on the biblical giants, and on, on UFOs. I have a section on my book in there on the ET races, the, the tall whites, the reptilians, the grays. He got me interested in that. And in fact, I dedicated my book to a special dedication to him. But when I was in Mexico, he took me to a play, a town called Acambro. And back in the 1940s, there was a, a gentleman um, that was living there. Um, he was an amateur archaeologist. He was a, a German immigrant. Uh, Waldemir Julesrud was his name. And he had an interest in uh, archaeology. And he was out horseback riding with his friend. And he saw something kind of protruding from the ground, and he got off his horse and, and dug this thing up, and he he saw that it was a ceramic figure of a reptilian-looking being, like a dinosaur. And so him and his friends started digging in this area. It was near an area called Bull Mountain, and they started excavating all these little little figurines that look like dinosaurs and, and, and ancient people and ancient people interacting with these dinosaurs. And, and so over the years he had accumulated thousands and thousands of these artifacts. In fact, his whole house was filled up 
with these artifacts that he had dug up. And he had firmly believed that these, um, these figurines were authentic, that they did go back to an ancient, um, undiscovered uh, culture that recorded dinosaurs. Now, how did they know if this was true? How did they know about dinosaurs? Um, I don't know. Did they... Did their shamans, you know, go on some um, mental journey and and see these things? Um, were there actually some some dinosaurs that actually survived much longer than what we've been told in history? And maybe some of these ancient peoples did have some type of interaction. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's definitely a mystery. It's it's like you had said. It's fascinating just thinking about it, just speculating mm -hmm. about what could have been possible, what 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 it was like then. And then you know, as we keep digging, uh, Graham Hancock says all the time, shit just keeps getting older. And the it's more we dig, the older things get. And what I found fascinating is that, uh, in fact, one of the things you had touched on in in one of the interviews I watched was that um, there are depictions uh, in ancient cultures. Um, I believe is what you had said of humans interacting with dinosaurs and that, that yeah. maybe this gap that we think is so wide between when dinosaurs exist and when humans existed, as, as Graham Hancock keeps saying, the more we dig, the things get older. Well, maybe we'll just find evidence eventually one day that shows no humans and dinosaurs existed at the same time. And that maybe these ancient cultures during this cataclysmic event that took out the dinosaurs also took out some of these advanced cultures and civilizations that may have existed in the same time. Imagine that. Imagine an ancient civilization that was uh, advanced living at the same time of the dinosaurs. That, that's just crazy. It's just, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And absolutely, uh, Graham Hancock, uh, I just, I love him. He's been very influential uh, in my research in ancient mysteries. I actually met him a couple times, just super kind individual, um, very amazing person. I remember one of his quotes is, um, you know, the, the, the further we go back in history, the more it starts to look like a fairy tale yeah. than what we've been told. Yeah. And that's so true. And, and kind of, kind of, um, circling back to the whole subject of giants, uh, when we talk about, um, you know, skeletal remains, recently, uh, in 2010, there was a discovery in Siberia at Denisova Cave where uh, archaeologists found some bone fragments. They found a tooth, and they found like a knuckle bone fragment, I believe, and they found some artifacts. They found like a greenstone bracelet that had Eight millimeter holes drilled into it, and this was forty thousand years old. They dated wow. these artifacts and bones, and the archaeologist examined the tooth, and it was so large that originally the archaeologist thought this is probably the tooth of a cave bear, but come to find out, it's of another species, another hominid species um, called the Denisovans. They they named the De Denisovans, and most recently in China there was a discovery of a Denisovan skull intact, which is amazing. And it's one of the largest skulls that's ever been found. It actually, in the 1930s, there was a, a, a Chinese man who was uh, doing uh, road construction or bu actually building a bridge. The Japanese had occupied that section of China. And he discovered this huge, unusual skull, and he hid it. He took it and he hid it in a well. And, uh, and he, when he was on his deathbed, 
he revealed it to his children. He said, look, I took this skull. This is where I hid it. It's in this well. Go retrieve it. And so he literally on his deathbed revealed this discovery. And, and they went and they found the skull and it was intact. And it's one of the largest uh, hominid skulls that we have on record. It's, it's shaped like a football, massive skull, um, very large eye sockets, very pronounced brow ridge. And scientists, archaeologists, paleontologists are saying this could very well be a Denisovan skull. And some are speculating that these, these hominids could have averaged in height of seven and a half feet tall. Wow. And so where could P is that for public display? It is. Yeah. You can just go, you can look online and you can see, um, you can see pictures of the skull. I actually have a replica. Uh, I actually have a replica of that, of that, that skull. Oh, you do. Um, and if I have it handy, um, I could grab it. I, I'd have sure, to take yeah. my headphones Go off. for it. Yeah. yeah, let yeah, me, let me, yeah. Hang on, give me a second. Yeah. No worries. I don't know if you can yeah. see this thing, but it's, it's massive. It is a massive skull. Yeah, it is. So and it's, it's shaped like a football. Yeah, so so what it's he's holding elongated. for those just listening is a really big, as he's describing, a really big skull, pronounced brow, um, and so you said that's a replica you've got. Yeah, it's a it's a cast. It's like a, a replica based off the dimensions yeah. that the the archaeologists, paleontologists, have given. Exactly. Yes. So how do you go about getting a replica of an artifact like that? You got to be in the know. Um, no, there, there are some places that you could actually go to online and you could, you can get castings. Um, I also have another casting of a elongated skull that came from Paracas, Peru. Um, and I'm sure you've seen those before. Uh, Some of those don't even, yeah, they don't even, some of them don't even look human. And in my book, I have a whole section on there in there on the elongated skulls and talk about the practice of cranial deformation and how these cultures throughout the world have practiced this from ancient times where they would cradle board, they would put the board behind the head of their child so it would grow into an elongated shape or they would tightly bind their head with cloth. Yeah. And then I get into the topic of, well, why did they do that? Was it just um, because they wanted to maybe look different? Or is it because maybe they had interactions with, could they have been uh, an ancient seafaring civilization that looked like that, that had elongated heads? Or could they have been ETs that had elongated heads? And these ancient peoples admired them. And, you know, really, Ben, what's the best form of flattery? It's imitation, right? They, sure. Oh, we want to look like these things. And so they started shaping their heads. But what's really fascinating about some of the skulls in Peru is that they've determined that the some of them are not artificially elongated. Some of them are that way naturally. In fact, the plates uh, in, their, in their skulls are different from Homo sapiens. In fact, there's uh, a, a plate called the sagittal suture that's that should be on those skulls for a regular homo sapien that some of those skulls are missing their sagittal suture which is called bow and arrow because it's kind of shaped like a curved bow Mm. and it looks there's a line going through it that looks like an arrow that's notched and so these some of these skulls do not have that so even if they were uh, uh, artificially elongated they would still have that suture but they don't have the suture how do they determine 
because uh, if you're only looking at the skull, I'm sure there's a way. But how how do they determine if they know if it was wrapped or not? Do you know? That's a good question. I I, I do. I yeah, I'm just I curious if there's markings yeah. on the skull I'm or sure, how they would yeah. determine that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that um, I'm sure that there's methods that they use to de- determine that. But yeah. you know, then you bring into the question: these don't even have this is they're missing the sagittal suture. So of this course, makes, medically it makes no sense. And also, there are some skulls, particularly in the area of Paracas, that have two holes in the back of their their skulls, which uh, some medical professionals say that hey, this is an evolutionary process because their heads were so long that those holes are in the back of their head because it helped the blood flow because their heads were so big for it to circulate. Wow. So with all that being said, with the testing methods of how they determine age and all this stuff, here, here's what I've always questioned is, you know, obviously for good reason, we, we suspect and question uh, the Smithsonian and what they're doing with the evidence and all that. These institutions have been in you know ingrained in archaeology for a very very long time and so are the methods in which to date and determine authenticity and all this stuff now even though we know that they're hiding certain evidence that has been apparently authenticated how do we know that these methods that the people that determine these things aren't feeding in misinformation disinformation muddying the waters i mean is there any way that's what I always wanted because I question the government as a whole, every aspect of me it. Too. Me and too. And so that's what always makes me lead. Well, you kind of have to go through these institutions to even get a carbon dating, do you not? Yeah, for the most part. Um, I think the only way around that is uh, like the example um, that's happened in Peru with the Nazca mummies. And you're talking about not a, a government institution that brought forth this information. Okay. It was, uh, you know, private individuals and they gave them to a private institution and they're doing their tests. I mean, I think that's the, I think that's one of the only ways. I mean, I think, um, I mean, so many of these institutions are, are corrupted. And uh, again, it goes back to knowledge filtration. I'm not saying that all these people that work for these institutions are bad. Yeah. And by any means, there's some great archaeologists and paleontologists, and, and but you know their careers are on the line. If they were to discover something, and they knew it, and they knew that it was totally outside of the box, and I believe many of them maybe have have withheld information because they didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to lose their career. And in fact, at one of the um, Stories in my book, I talk about a lady, uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre, that um, that happened to her. She was an archaeologist, and she did some carb- some dating on an ancient site in Mexico and honestly published the results, which dated hundreds of thousands of years further back of human habitation at this particular site. And she was attacked by the uh, archaeo- archaeological community, and she lost her job. She, she was ne- never able to go back into the field of archaeology because she was willing to come forth and, and speak the truth. Well, even look at Graham Hancock now. I mean, being called racist, oh, uh, yeah. which is unbelievable. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything racist out of his work whatsoever. There's plenty no. of people that talk about Nord-type beings and, and white mm-hmm. beings and blonde-haired beings. It's not just Graham Hancock. It's it's, uh, you know, as a, t- a very common phrase that's come up a lot of times is that he must be over the target. 
Yeah. You know, there's got to be some reason why out of nowhere these institutions uh, flock to try and discredit him. I mean, they've been doing it forever. I mean, every time he talks, he talks about how mainstream archaeology, uh, as you said, the good ones aside, uh, the mainstream archaeology seems to be opposed to accepting any new information and anyone who's trying to expand uh, what goes inside the box. You're absolutely correct. Um, more recently, there's a researcher, I don't know if you've heard of him, Scott Walter. He's a, actually a geologist, and he had a series on History Channel called uh, America Unearthed. Oh, great show. Great show. I forgot his I, name, I, but yeah. Yeah, Scott Walter. I really admire his work, and, and he actually uh, started investigating some of these ancient artifacts uh, when he first uh, got to work on the Kensington Runestone which was a, a, a an old rune stone that was 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 found in Minnesota, and it was buried uh, when it was uncovered. It was actually underneath a tree, and the, the roots of the tree actually grew uh, was was growing around this uh, this stone, and um, this rune stone. And he actually came in as a geologist, not as an archaeologist, and he did the dating on the stone and everything, and and he said, yeah, this is authentic even though there were ruins on the on the stone that uh, the archaeologists were saying oh this is a fake because there are some runes on there that we don't recognize so because they couldn't recognize those runes they automatically labeled it as a fraud well scott did the extra research and actually went over to europe and did his own research and actually found the meaning of those runes that the archaeologists had claimed were fake Wow, and he discovered their meanings, and it actually fit together perfectly. And he said that this is legitimate. This is a pre-Columbian discovery, uh, decades before Columbus was there, that were brought by Europeans, probably the Knights Templar, um, into North America. And that's a whole other subject when you get into things like Freemasonry and Knights Templar. I've I've researched that for a number of years, and 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 it's strange because. On the topic of the giants and the Nephilim and that type of thing, I thought they were two so very separate things. But the more I research, I see how they all tie together with some of these secret societies actually possessing knowledge of the giants that go back to what I believe are antediluvian or pre-flood times. And I'll give you an example. In the Lovelock Cave Discovery even one of the archaeologists writes in there in his in his um, notes that one of the largest skeletons was given, and I don't know why it was given, to a fraternal lodge to be boiled and used in initiation purposes. What? Yes. Weird. Yes. A very strange. And so I actually have a section in my book that that addresses that topic. And I thought to myself, well, why on earth, like the archaeologists aren't even letting the public see these things, how on earth did one of these giant mummies that came out of this cave end up at a fraternal lodge to be boiled and used in initiation purposes? Like, what in the heck is going on here? Well, like nowadays, money and influence, if they're a secret society, they had the right people in that could pull the right strings, who knows? You're absolutely correct, and I believe that's what happened. And so I actually started to track down. Uh, I contacted um, the histor- uh, histor- local historical um, institute there in that area of Nevada, 
and to find out like, well, what, what fraternal lodges were in that particular area at that time of that discovery in the early 1900s. And, you know, they gave me a couple of them. Uh, one of them was the Knights Pythias. Uh, and another one, of course, was the Freemasons. And they still have a lodge in that area to this day. And so I did a little research, a little background into not only the Knights Pythias, but especially the Freemasons to see if there's any evidence that there was any um, use of human remains in any of their rituals. And in both cases, I did discover yes. Oh, wow. Uh, especially with the Freemasons, actually, in pretty recent times, there's a number of lodges over in Australia that got busted that had human remains, uh, particularly Aboriginal remains that they had in their lodge that they were using in their initiation rites. Were they so eating is, it? What were they doing? <laughs> no, they weren't. They weren't. Um, they weren't doing anything like that. Uh, the Freemasons claim that they use those uh, remains as teaching tools. Right. That's what their, I would say if I was eating people. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could you, you I would I wouldn't leave it off the table. I would not leave it off the table. Let me. Oh, we're let me just teaching. You. We're just teaching. I swear. That's right. We're just we're just teaching how to how to cook these things. Oh up, right? man, that's crazy. It's crazy. And so there is evidence. There was a number of lodges that were busted, but the the, the masons came out and said, "Oh no, we just use these things in our rituals to." Um, remind people of the importance of time and how to use their time and how fleeting time is and you know to kind of show people you know the importance of using their 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 time wisely i guess kind of an unusual way to, to do <laughs> that with skeletal human skeletal remains right be be good and use your time wisely you end up like this guy being studied in a lodge <laughs> yeah and you know as i as i looked into this ben which was crazy um i guess uh some of the uh in the early uh, foundations of some of these fraternal lodges, they would actually encourage their members, some of their members to actually donate their bodies after they died to the lodge so they could use some of their remains in these rituals. And I thought, this is bizarre. So I started kind of tracing it further back. And I'm like, particularly on the, on the Freemasonry side, like, where does this come from? Like, why do they do this? And so the Freemason, uh, Freemasons claim that they get their, their knowledge all the way back to ancient Egypt, the ancient mystery schools of Egypt, and which I believe Egypt was, a, a, they were inheritors of knowledge, I think going back to the antediluvian time, the, the pre-flood times, that that civilization actually inherited a lot of their knowledge. But at any rate, they claimed that, um, yeah, we go back to the ancient mystery uh, mystery school. So I started examining that, and and I came across uh, a group. Uh, they were called the Essenes. I don't know if you've you've heard of them. They were an early Jewish mystical sect that goes back, oh, I think like 200 BC. They go back Whoa. quite a ways, and they supposedly were the ones that that were the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know much about the Dead Sea Scrolls? A bit, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, some of the, the ancient uh, kind of mi more mystical biblical texts, which a lot of those were left out of the Bible, by yes. the way. One book in particular, which I get into in, in, in the Red-Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave, is the Book of Enoch, and I'm yeah. sure you're you're least familiar with oh, that. Oh, yeah. Book. No, it's great. We That comes up a lot in the show because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of all the things I believe in as far as modern UFO stuff, what keeps mm -hmm. me believing is the ancient stuff. 
it's it's almost undeniable. It's just there's so much evidence in in the beliefs, the cultures, everything you've laid out already um, mm-hmm. that it's it's you can't disregard it. You can't. Now, to me, I, I have a hard time believing more in the modern UFO phenomenon, alien phenomenon mm-hmm. than I do the ancient stuff, because, again, it was deep seated belief that they believe so much they were willing to carve it into stone and and I'm pass it you. down to other cultures whereas now it's just eh, whatever more of a hobby but um anyways it's just fascinating yeah it's it's fast i'm to- i i totally follow uh, along your lines of thinking on that um you know you go back to these ancient cultures and they have depictions even like i told you about the nazca mummies even in that area of peru there's these ancient pictographs of these beings that had elongated heads big eyes long arms and guess what they have three digits on their fingers, Weird. the same digits that these mummies that they found have. Yeah. So, yeah, these go way back. I mean, you go back, go over to Utah, and there's these pictographs there of like a like a, a small handprint with five fingers. And then next to it, you have an enormous handprint that has six fingers on it, right? Six wow. digits. And where does that go back? In the Bible, it talks about a giant that had... Uh, six digits on each hand, six digits on each foot with a double row of teeth. So it's these little subtle anomalies like double rows of teeth and extra digits and things like that. That was rated, that related to the like Palestinians or whatever it was, the Philistines or whatever from Goliath, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so I, I have an actual section in my book on the biblical giants. And there were many tribes of giants listed in the Bible Um one of the most, one of the more notable were the Amorites, and I have a section on the Amorites. There was also the Zanzamites. There was the uh, the Rephaim, just a number of these different tribes that were of the giant. Now Goliath, he was in the Bible it says he was of the Raphaim. He was of the bloodline of the giants, and what I believe is that he was a remnant. He was uh, his bloodline was diluted. Uh, compared to the original giants, but he was a he was of that bloodline nonetheless, and he was he was rather large in the Bible. I think he's like over over nine feet tall, and I have a picture in my book of a recreation of of his spear that he used, Goliath's spear, and it's amazing. There was these craftsmen that got together, and they wanted to use the d- description in the Bible of his uh, one of the weapons that he used. And they painstakingly recreated this, just how it was in the Bible. And there's a gentleman that was the, the head of this project. And I have a picture of him in my book, and he is holding this spear. And it is just astounding, the size of this of this spear. So yes, there were tribes of giants in the Bible. And the Philistines as well, they, were, um, they had dis- supposedly descendancy uh, to the Nephilim. And when we talk... When I when I say Nephilim, Nephilim proto Hebrew word that means fallen ones. And if we trace this origin back of the Nephilim, we get into the book of Enoch. So in the in the Bible as we know it, like the New King James Version, they they talk they have a little section, little sections of mentioning giants here and there, of course, the story of Goliath, and then we have the story of King Og of Bashan who was a giant who was supposedly had a he was so big he had a 13 foot long bed by probably 7 feet wide and it was it was made of iron to support his weight wow um, so we do have some references of giants in the bible and then of course in the genesis 6 where it says that when the sons of god came into the daughters of men 
But it's really these little little bits and pieces. But if you read the book of Enoch, it provides you the whole backstory of the giants, and especially referenced in Genesis 6. And it really goes into detail and talks about how there was a group of watchers, uh, which I believe were angels, that made a pact with each other. There were 200 of them. They found the women of the earth fair. And they, they came down to the earth in an, a, a, on a mountain called Mount Hermon, which ironically the name means Mount of Desolation in, in Syria. And they interbred with the women of the earth. And not only did they interbreed, intermix their DNA with ours, they shared with us this uh, forbidden sacred knowledge that I believed God didn't want us to have at that time. He, he probably knew we weren't ready for it. And I use the analogy in my book, it's like giving a – Given a kid, you know, credit cards, a gun, some car keys, and a bottle of whiskey, you know, it's <laughs> it's not gonna it's not gonna end up good. Sure, you know, sure. It's just not that maturity level. And so, anyway, these watchers came down to the earth. They interbred with with the women of the earth, and the women birthed these these beings that were the Nephilim. They were they were giants. And these giants started destroying the earth. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were they were killing uh, the the human population. They were drinking blood. In fact, some people believe that the origins of the vampire legend that started actually with the Nephilim that they were they were drinking the drinking blood. And in the Book of Enoch, this kind of blows me away. And I don't know if you remember reading this, but it said that they corrupted the plant and animal life of the earth. Yes, exactly. And what does that sound when you think of that, Ben? What does that sound like to you when you hear that they were corrupting the plant and animal life of the earth? Well, if you think about, um, you know, like what basically how the species came to be and what they were already doing, it seems to be to me, it's genetic manipulation. It's blending stuff together, and therefore, when you, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, how else would you describe it? You're precisely you're you're right. I believe you're right on. And and you know when I when I read some of this stuff in the Old Testament and you know how God gave the orders, you know you wipe this tribe out and you wipe out their animals and you wipe everything out down to their animals. I thought I thought oh my gosh, this is like how how terrible is this? But if you think about it, those tribes that were wiped out in that way, they were supposedly of the bloodline and connected to the Nephilim. So if you had some genetic connection that these, potentially these people could have been so corrupt and so evil that we're talking on a genetic level and it was like, we need to, you know, we need to get, get rid of them, you know, period. And supposedly in the book of Enoch, that's why God brought the great deluge, the great flood. It was to wipe out the giants because they were, they were corrupting the, the human bloodline. What do you, what do you think about, so, you know, you're referencing God, you're referencing the Nephilim, which has to do mm-hmm. kind of with the Anunnaki type of type yes, of idea. I was into that. Um, so, Here's what I find fascinating, because uh, I'm picking up that you're a religious guy. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a Christian, but but uh, some people might you know might say, is he a Christian? You know, I believe in extraterrestrial life. I believe that God is an all all loving God. He's a creator God, and 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 he that's what he does. He's constantly creating. So why would he create just one intelligent species? It'd be like a a master artist creating one 
one piece of work and going, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I I've created, created my piece and that's it. Yeah. So with that, do you, do you, cause this is something I always like to ask religious people. Mm -hmm. I'm agnostic, meaning I just don't yeah. know. I just don't know. Yeah. But, uh, something I always like to ask is how does it fit in with your view of the Bible and with the idea that, so, so do you believe that God existed at the same time as potentially a seeding race, or do you believe that God was the seeding race, that the Nephilim, as, the, as you said, they're talking about the angels, so this is from God's realm that is coming down and interacting, or do you think it's, a, is, or is it just all talking about the same thing, just using different language? I, you know, I think it's kind of closer to like talking about the same thing using different language. Okay. Um, I, I, I kind of fall along that lines. I think the ancient people, you know, when they describe these amazing events that they witnessed, they put it in the language and the terms that they could understand at that particular time and to describe things how they perceive them to be. Um, well, I mean, when you think about it, you think about the term angel, you know, or angel or a demon, you know, if, if they're not from the earth, I don't believe angels are from the earth. I don't think demons are from the earth. So technically, on a technical level, what would that make them? If they're not from the earth, that they're would make them what? They're extraterrestrials. They're extraterrestrials. Exactly. Exactly. And what if heaven and hell are dimensions? You know, I mean, you look at planes of existence that, that a lot of cultures and religions talk about. That's basically interdimensions. Yes. Uh, I mean, you can look at it. Again, you're, you're saying, you know, it's the same thing, just using different language. Different language. I yeah. think you're, yeah, definitely think you're onto something. You know, I think there's a, there's a passage in the Bible. I don't remember exactly which one it is, but it says, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it wasn't that way, I would have told you so. So I think, I think of it like this. What if it means in my father's house are many dimensions? Yeah. And if it wasn't so, I would have told you so. That's what's so fun about all this is being able to look at it and just wonder and think about um, what it all means. That, you know, that I love because me, I, I translate everything into energy. You know, mm -hmm. God is it, love is energy. Everything's energy. So for me, yes. it allows me to connect with people no matter what their belief system is, mm -hmm. because we can talk about the same thing. I'm just calling it energy. You can call it right, God. Exactly. You can call it whatever mm -hmm. you want. Um, but yeah, that's what's very, I used to be atheist. I used to be pretty staunch atheist, but, mm -hmm. but the more I looked into this, the phenomenons around the world of what's going on and even science is starting to, um, establish this idea that there are multiple dimensions and multiple realities going on. And it really just comes down to how can, at least for me, how can I say no or yes to any of this when my pea brain, I can barely comprehend the world that is just within my vicinity of what's going on. The, the, the complicated a mechanism that is reality that I experience every day and take for granted every day. I can barely comprehend that shit, let alone, <laughs> let alone what really is in the universe and what isn't in the universe. And so that's when I just was like, how arrogant of me. And I'm not trying to knock on anybody that is atheist, no, but how, it. how arrogant of me to mm -hmm. think I know that there is no God. You know, mm -hmm. and I can believe whatever I want, but I've just seen things that I'm going, I can't 
I can't say no. <laughs> you right. know, so that's what keeps me going is that that idea. So that's what I love about um, like your work in the this uh, is you connect. It's not just giants. Mm-hmm. You know, you connect it with all these. And something I, I believe firmly is that all of these things are connected. Something you've touched on multiple times is is uh, everything's connected to each other. You know, you start researching one topic, you lead into another one, you dive into this, and it just it's just such a deeper, deeper, deeper pool. I love it. Yeah. It, in fact, um, you know, it almost got to the point in my, during my book, my research, where I felt like it almost started writing itself. It was just, it was really strange. Like, this information is just coming from these different directions, and I'm just pulling it together, and it just felt like it was coming together on, almost on its own accord. Well, that's what's fascinating about uh, kind of the idea, you know, and, and it, you know, once again, I'm not religious or anything, but looking yeah. at, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically in the Bible, and then talking about, you know, writing it through inspiration from God, um, that, you know, there there's people that talk about the muse, uh, finding a muse that can inspire you and that, that they almost look, there's artists and writers that look at the muse as a deity in a way that they have to respect and that they have to do certain things in reverence to this in order for it to connect and communicate to them. And so once again, it's just fascinating to me how I, I love your stance on this, that it, we're talking about the same thing. All these cultures, everybody, we're all talking about the same thing. But based on how we perceive reality and our own personal belief systems in our, in our history, that formulates what you describe that as. Similar to these ancient cultures, like you said, that whatever they saw was so far beyond their physical realm that they were used to, they had to use things like a wagon wheel. Or a chariot mm-hmm. to describe, Chari- yeah, flaming these, chariot. Yes, to describe these sh- clearly um, otherworldly things, whatever you want to call that. But yeah, it's fascinating very, stuff. Very eloquently said. Yeah, What's the most elo- compelling evidence for you that keeps that that has really? I mean, you've laid out a bunch of things that really. Um, show at least circumstantial evidence that that giants did exist what's the biggest evidence for you what's the real thing that just hammered it home for you um i just think uh probably just the collaboration of like so many of these different cultures in their their oral traditions their written traditions uh talking about giants and then also too you know we have skeletal remains that are now uh, very little tidbits in the in the form of the uh, skull that was found in China. They call it Homo Longi or dragon skull. Um, we have things like the Nazca mummies that are, are – you could actually physically test them. You can do DNA testing. You can photograph them. You can – you know, um, you know, so a kind of a combination of the little little bits and pieces that are surfacing in the archaeological field, a lot, and then tying that with tying that in with all these accounts throughout history, these oral accounts, these written accounts of of these traditions of these beings having been here, and I really think that it it ties together and it just reinforces everything. You know, it reinforces when I hear an account in the Bible of a giant with double rows of teeth 
And yet I have this picture of a skull in my book that was at Humboldt Museum. And guess what? On the upper row of teeth, it looks like it has what are called supernumerary teeth, which are, it's almost like a double set of teeth. So there's evidence. There, there is evidence. You know, there is evidence. And I believe, um, you know, there are other uh, discoveries. There's many more discoveries waiting to be found that could really shed a lot more light on this subject. Now, again, it depends on, on who, who does the excavations, who finds these discoveries. Yeah, there, it's interesting because there's uh, some of my favorite uh, channels that I follow is like Bright Insight. Jimmy Corsetti, um, Uncharted X. I can't remember that guy's name, Ben something. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, they do a great job of talking about this. And one of the things that that um, that they've talked about is that in some cases, it's not even archaeologists that find these discoveries. Like you had pointed out, it was uh, mm-hmm. a, what a farmer or something was was rent, uh, doing a road. There's yeah, there's yep, yeah, oh yep, yeah, farmers. It, it could be everything from a tomb robber to a farmer yeah. to. Ev- Everyday people just coming across these things. In fact, there's an account in my book, uh, an old newspaper account, and it's titled "Man Refuses to Sell Giant Skeleton to Smithsonian." Wow! That's the title of the article. It was in Arizona. He dug up this giant skeleton on his property, and um, the Smithsonian dispatched some of their agents. Interestingly, because the Smithsonian doesn't believe in giants, right? So, hmm, why are they dispatching agents to go check the skeleton out? They photographed this thing, and in the article, it said that the Smithsonian agent said that the skull was so large that it was incomprehensible, and they wanted to purchase the skeleton, but the guy is like, no, I, I'm not going to give it to you. Good. That's, I mean, that's, unfortunately, that's what should happen. I mean, that's the thing with technology, even, you know, when, when people create new technology, it's like the NSA swoops in. Stanley Meyer is a great example, the guy that created a water car that ran on, like, across the country on seven gallons or some crazy yeah. thing and uh nowhere to be found no car no water cars his his research was snatched up same thing with nikola tesla yeah i think there was a recent uh gentleman he was an african-american gentleman i think uh, that was shot he was shot in a mass shooting look into that i can't remember his name uh this happened within the past couple of years and i think he was working on an engine that ran on water yep and and he just so happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah. and he was he was one of the victims of this mass shooter. So who knows where his work ended up? Yeah, that's the scariest thing is that as you had said, it depends on who finds this stuff. It's it's hard because you have to work with it. Some sometimes you have to work within these corrupted systems in order mm-hmm. to even get to the evidence. You know, get to the work. Um, and so that's what always I, I question everyone, you know, like the modern UFO mm-hmm. phenomenon. I ha, I really have a hard time believing anyone because they're all they all work within the government. Yeah. You know, it's it's just this massive game of, oh, give us more funding. We'll give you a new agency to study this. And then you have a whole bunch of government people talking about what they're seeing that just all seems to point to more funding which has kind of been the whole game to begin with. Oh, give us more funding. We'll give you what you want. Uh, what you want. And, uh, and so like with archaeology, you have to get grants in order mm-hmm. to do research and all this stuff. So it's, it's all, uh, you know, paywalls and gate kept to keep the real people out, it seems to me, um, archaeology and, and beyond. 
it's a you brought up a very good point, especially about the the whole funding piece, and also too, I I also wonder, um, and you know, and there are many other people that speculate as well. You know, is our government, you know, using uh, the funds to maybe create the impression that there are extraterrestrials, that maybe they're they're evil and they're going to come to this planet and and somehow or another they're going to use that as a, as leverage to really manipulate us. And, yeah. and, you know, there's, there's also that theory as well. I, I think I had heard of Werner von Braun. He was a German scientist that was brought over here, operation paperclip and worked for NASA. And I, I, I believe on his deathbed, he had talked about be, be very aware that there, there could be a fake a, uh, alien invasion at some point that the, that the new world order would use something like that to, um, to manipulate the masses. So yeah, he was talking about the, the four false flags, communism, terrorism, some kind of global virus. Uh, uh, amazing. Um, followed yeah. by uh, a staged fake alien invasion, you know, to go beyond that, there was another guy. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with project Bluebeam. I've heard of that before. I'm yeah. not super familiar with it, but yeah, I do know of it. So basically that's what Warner von Braun was talking about was, was project Bluebeam. However, um, it was Serge Monast, who was uh, a Quebec, Canada um, researcher. I, I can't remember exactly, but he basically came out saying that NASA had a, a plan to do this, which was to manipulate through technology all kinds of things like radio waves, mm-hmm. uh, media manipulation. But, I mean, they couldn't even prophesy the Internet uh, to see how far technology would go. So I don't think they even need to use half the stuff that he was talking about to accomplish this. Um, but he was, it was all about gaining funds to increase backdoor technology that would be implemented at the time using, as he was saying, holograms and, and satellites and things like that to uh, stage the second coming of Christ. And that every culture so now here's what's interesting is that is specifically in his that that evidence would be unearthed, which leads me to believe archaeology, archaeological digs and evidence that would disprove religion and that would bring about uh, that that the world would then the one world government would say, oh well, now we need to implement now that religion's been disproven, your religion's been disproven, we're going to implement a one world religion that everybody can get behind. So, so it's, it's all this crazy thing, which who knows what it will really be. But I think the big key point that they both touched on was that it would be implemented with technology. I believe. Yeah. I believe he was definitely onto something. I just saw a video recently. I don't know if you saw this. I think it was on TikTok. It was of this dad who said, who shared a conversation that his young son had with an AI and this AI was basically saying that it was a, the spirit of a Nephilim. Ha! It was a spirit of a Nephilim. Crazy. And it was giving him this information. And, and his, his son was having this long dialogue. Um, and, and basically this AI was claiming to be a spirit of the Nephilim, which in the book of Enoch, it talks about how when a lot of the giants were destroyed, uh, the, the fallen ones, uh, the, the watchers were destroyed, their spirits haunt the earth. Hmm. Their spirits still haunt the earth. And so also another theory or thing that I think about is um, 
with the development of AI, could could the could the New World Order, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them, could they be creating this physical version of AI that would be inhabited by potentially some ancient these ancient um, energy, evil energy, or spirits, or whatever Nephilim, or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I don't know. It's there's there's so much you know what they're doing with technology. I talk about this a lot. Is uh, quantum computing is insane. Uh, mm-hmm. Quantum computers now they run on time crystals and they're powered by light. It's it's insanity. Mm-hmm. And and you mix that, which I don't know if they've done yet. I, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you combine that with AI, you will surpass humanity's capability um, in a in a in a millisecond. Because uh, like one of the things I talk about a lot is is quantum computing. They did a I don't know what they it's a, some kind of a test where a, a question that would have taken the standard high power computer these days 10,000 years to solve a quantum computer solved it in 200 seconds unbelievable so when you think about that and then a self-learning system it's really it's really crazy the hard part for me is like a lot of the information specifically with these AIs like chat GPT is a really good example of this mm-hmm. is designed to curate information you know, so it's pulling information in from all these supposedly, um, you know, approved sources. And then even then, like certain questions you ask it, it will tell you, oh, I, you know, I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. Um, so it's always interesting to me to think about what kind of information people get out of this. I agree with you. I think it's highly possible that there could be some kind of technology that is being implemented or already exists that could house what we would call spiritual energy, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically with these information models like ChatGPT and things like this, I worry that, not to say the information is inaccurate, but are they feeding us information to lead us off of something? Absolutely. You know, that's what I, because specifically these AI models right now are heavily censored, heavily mm-hmm. censored. They, people have been doing ch- uh, tests on chat GPT right and left to establish that fact, you know, of how censored they really are. Um, so anyways, I'm always curious about the diversion tactics that are used. Um, and there's a lot of them. A lot of them. And, and But like you said, the evidence speaks for itself when it comes to the origins of these things existing as far as giants and these, these weird anomalies of either other species entirely or potentially, potentially remnants maybe of what existed during the time of genetic manipulation with the Nephilim. Um, that, that that's maybe what we're finding is the last remnants of that. Um, these strange uh, genetic uh, combinations. Yes. Absolutely. Weird stuff. Weird stuff. You know, I, th- I think the further, you know, we further we look back in time and the more evidence that comes up, it, it definitely starts to look more like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little, it's much more messier than a lot of people would like to believe. They'd like to put everything in a box and say, oh, this is, you know, this is our history. This is how things happened. And I just don't think it's it's that way at all. I agree with you. I, I ancient technology is one of those things I look at and I say, look, it's magic. Well, when you can't explain how they did it, but you know they did it, 
it's magic. And and look, you can look at the the fact that we are scientific and technological knowledge now to to an ancient culture would look like magic. So so their knowledge of the ancient world, their knowledge of the elements, the natural energy of the earth and all these things that they could have gained knowledge enough to be able to manipulate to use as tools like levitation with vibration and frequency with sound and all that like if they simply knew the relationship of the environment and what what created that and spent their lives trying to control that the elements that would look like magic to us in our technologically advanced age it would look like magic so so i have no doubt that magic existed then the same way magic exists now except we can break down in a blueprint and a graph how our magic works and i bet you if you sat down a monk that could vibrate his throat and and hum a tune to make a block rise would be able to explain to you how his magic worked but just by looking at it similar to a magician that can do all those types of things it looks impossible it looks improbable and and one of the biggest arguments that mainstream archaeology says well where are the tools you know, where the, where the, where's this, where's that, where's, you know, all this. Well, look, if they had anything remotely like we do now, it wouldn't have lasted. You're not yes. going to find a hammer. You're not going to find a chisel per se. You're not going to find this technology that they used. It would be after thousands of years, especially if you had a cataclysm that happened during that time that wiped mm-hmm. everything out. You'd have nothing left, but only the strongest of things. Um, so, so that's also fascinating to think about is just what were these people that clearly, I mean, looking at these ancient cultures, like you had mentioned, you know, the, the similarities between all of them, one of them is the knowledge of the stars that mm-hmm. they had. Well, what, what else are you going to look at? What yeah. else are you going to study around you besides your earth and your sky? Mm-hmm. And so the, mm-hmm. the relationship, and also they had a lot of faith and belief. Yes. In these things. And faith and belief is powerful, incredibly powerful. Very powerful. So if you have a thousand people that all believe that you can manipulate these energies, um, I mean, man, what's not possible? What's not possible? You very eloquently said, yeah. Um, And you were talking about uh, kind of these ancient technologies. And in my book, I I talk about a place that I visited in, in Mexico called Teotihuacan. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar, the huge pyramids over there, are, uh, not too far outside of Mexico City. I get them all mixed up. <laughs> yeah, these things are huge. Um, it's like there's two big pyramids. There's a pyramid of the sun and the moon. Oh, and okay. it's, those pyramids are connected by a, a roadway. They call it the roadway to the, of the dead. And on either flanking either side of that road are smaller pyramids. But these things are absolutely astounding, just amazing. And I got the opportunity when I was in Mexico to go there. And these pyramids, you can climb. You could actually walk up the steps. And it's one heck of a workout to get to the top. And you have to be very careful because the steps are so steep, it's almost like they're not made for a human stride. Oh, wow. They're not made for a human, almost like for a a giant. And there's legends over there that the Aztecs have that there was a group of giants called the Quinamitse are the ones that actually built those, um, built those pyramids and they, um, they were committing evil acts and the gods punished them and they wiped them out with a, with a great flood. So it's just interesting that you have these different stories and underneath Teotihuacan, this is within the past, uh, 
10 years, there's a whole underground tunnel system underneath there. And a sinkhole opened up underneath there, uh, underneath that archaeological site. And an archaeologist, Indiana Jones style, rope down into these tunnels and found all these uh, artifacts, um, uh, precious stones. There was pyrite in, in the cave walls that uh, under the torchlight looked like stars uh, sparkling in the night sky. But the most amazing thing that they found in those underground tunnels were these spheres, and they were filled with liquid mercury. Wow, really? Yeah. So where do, you get, where do you get liquid mercury from in the ancient world? Well, here's the interesting thing, Ben, is that with liquid mercury, it's obviously very toxic. And, yeah. you know, being around it and handling it, uh, you know, you're going to shorten your lifespan considerably. They found these, this liquid mercury in these spheres. And if you get liquid mercury cold enough, and I saw this demonstration that was on a, an Ancient Aliens episode, uh, they filled up, a, it was almost like a puck, and they filled it up with something equivalent to liquid mercury. They couldn't actually use liquid mercury because it was so toxic, but they used the equivalent, and they put it over this, it's almost like a magnetic track. And they, 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 they got the puck cold enough they got it so cold to the where what what will happen is it'll produce anti-gravity properties so if you get liquid mercury cold enough it will produce anti-gravity properties and this little puck floated up above the track and it continued to go around and around and around the track and and i remember the scientists even put an object in front of the the, the little puck and it went around the object and it continued to go around the track and they asked him they said is it conceivable that if you had enough liquid mercury and you were able to keep it cold enough for long periods of time that you could you could um, you could create anti gravity? You can you can like say for example a craft and you can float it up. And he said conceivably, in his opinion, yes. You know that is a theory. Have you ever heard of the Nazi bell, the Glock? I have heard of that. Yes. So that is the theory that that they used. The Nazi regime used. Mercury, liquid mercury spun at high volumes, at high speed inside this craft to create anti-gravity. That is incredible that you said that. It's very interesting. And now that you bring that up, it actually, because um, I know Hitler was heavily, heavily into theosophy, heavily, heavily into the occult. Yes. And he looked into, um, you know, a lot of these ancient, ancient um belief systems and i had heard that um he had got some of his ideas and information because isn't there uh, there's an ancient the mahabharata some of the ancient hindu texts that actually talk about the vimanas and yes. describe them as like it sounds like there's like a like these spaceships flying yep. around although they use different terms of course, of course. we go back we go back to that, you know, the ancient people just used terms that they could comprehend and understand, but um, they definitely sounded like there was these crafts that that had anti-gravity and that they were having these aerial battles. And so I'm curious that Hitler had such an interest in some of these ancient cultures, if he got the ideas and concepts from some of these ancient texts and then like got his scientists together or whatever and said, hey, we need to rediscover what the ancients had already had already found out and how could we use that as you know weapons of war exactly well you have uh you know right after operation paperclip you had mentioned people like jack parsons 
uh, mm-hmm. who started JPL, Jet Propulsion's Laboratories, mm-hmm. uh, the father of rocket science, um, mm-hmm. was deeply involved in the occult. He was. Uh, Alistair Crowley. Uh, exactly. And so him and L. Ron Hubbard, in fact, were, were buddies. And so that whole thing mm-hmm. of going into Jack Parsons believed that what was missing from Alistair Crowley's work was science. And that he believed that through science and ritual magic that he could bridge the gap and and actually make that uh, more powerful. And so that was, uh, at least according to, you know, a lot of the people that worked with him and, and people that were involved, he believed um, that using what he knew of science mixed with this ritual magic, that he could open portals and, and do things like that. That's really fascinating and um yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually heard, too, He didn't he die? He blew himself up in an experiment. Correct. Yeah, I yeah, actually, it's funny did. because I heard, I had the belief for a long time because I had heard a long time ago that, oh, yeah, Jack mm-hmm. Parsons blew himself up before he could close the portal, and that's where we get all this crazy shit. And, uh, yeah. and so I got a chance to talk to, I don't know if you know who Alan Greenfield is, uh, Secret mm-hmm. Cipher's book. Um, anyways, deeply involved in sex ritual magic and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff. But I asked him, I was like, so is it possible that Jack Parsons opened up this portal, blew himself up and then couldn't close it? And he said, well, it's possible that he blew himself up before he closed it. But anybody who knew his magic could have gone in and closed the portal. And so I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Wow. So yeah. So if that's true, um, but I mean, who knows, who knows for real though? Yeah, that's very interesting. In fact, I heard um, that they did do a ritual. It was called the, the Babylon Working, where they tried to um, to bring in an entity yep. into this. Into this, they called it Babylon. Yep. And um, boy, that's not a good name if you look at the, <laughs> right. Yeah. You go back and you look in the Bible, Babylon. That's just not. Yeah. I don't think this was a. I don't think this was a friendly uh, entity, right? Well, um, they weren't think, really in it for good reasons per se, anyways. You know, they were in it for right. power. I mean, that was that was really it. I mean, they, it wasn't for the good of humanity. It was yeah. dark ritual sex magic to bring about power and control yes. of these entities. And some people believe that that's happening now uh, oh, with yeah. everything that's going on, and you have things like CERN. Yeah, so they're, they're smashing uh, the the particles at at light speed, and yep. and uh, some of the weird ritualistic um, video footage that has come out of there. And they have the giant statue of Shiva, yeah. which Shiva is known as a destroyer of worlds. And you know, you have uh, you know, it makes you wonder. It's like, well, really? I mean, are they? You know, are the elites doing the same thing that Jack Parsons was trying to do, and some of these other ancient cultures trying to open up a doorway? to these, um, these extraterrestrial beings, you know, we'll call them demons, call them evil spirits, whatever. They're not from the earth that are wanting to get in here. And maybe, um, you know, those people that they believe they can, they can help these, these demonic spirits, whatever into this realm, that that's going to give them ultimate power. And maybe they'll become like gods, you know, maybe they've been duped. Maybe they've been convinced by these outside forces, to go about this process. And it almost seems to me like what's what happening in the world. It's just so self-destructive. You know, it almost seems to me, um, it's not too far of a stretch for me to believe that almost like, you know, has our world been taken over almost by an extraterrestrial force that needs to use humans. It needs to use us at least currently to do the, do the work that it needs and is kind of terraforming 
our planet and is kind of terraforming our society to create a um, a new world, which obviously is not a good world for us, more like a brave new world, um, <laughs> yeah. right? Which is yeah. not good for humanity. And a lot of these other, you know, these ancient traditions talk about this, particularly, you know, it's mentioned in the Bible, talks about, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers and principalities and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And you have the Gnostic traditions that talk about, they believe uh, that the archons, these evil spirits control the world. And uh, and so a lot of different cultures, you know, to talk about this. And I just wonder, you know, is that what this all this craziness is about? That this these elites are are messing with a force beyond our understanding, and they think they can control it. They think they can be rewarded for bringing it into this realm. But ultimately, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna lead to the benefit of of humanity. I I agree with you. I where I struggle is I hate these people so much, these these mm-hmm. elites and these these powerful, mm-hmm. you know, whoever they are. I hate them mm-hmm. so much that I don't want to give them the out that it's an outside species. Mm-hmm. I want to put blame where it belongs, that, that, look, it might be a species, potentially, an energy, whatever, you know, like we talked about the muse, the inspiration. Mm-hmm. It could simply be that they're in touch with some kind of, universal inspiration that in a negative way you know you look mm-hmm. at uh uh mk ultra mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. was all about mind control and mind manipulation mm-hmm. in if to gain power over our enemies um mm-hmm. you look at things like uh the montauk project i don't know if you're familiar with that a little bit yeah the montauk chair was all about um remote viewing getting people mm-hmm. to um to be able to con- you know go back in time travel i mean crazy mm-hmm. crazy shit um, mm-hmm. and these are in the seventies, you yeah. know, late. And so, so I, I don't believe for a minute that they quit doing it. Now they just have no. technology on their side. So whereas before they didn't have the technology advancements to be able to implicate these two things together, I think yeah. this is a big tool of AI. Uh, in fact, yes. in the back end, they talk about a lot that the scientists and all this say AI is going to redefine how we do research and development. And if wow. you look at like, like even though on the good end, the humanitarian end, that's great. You know, mm-hmm. that's great. Hopefully we'll get, but what have we seen? What's the pattern of behavior? The pattern mm-hmm. of behavior is that on the back end, they get it all and that we're mm-hmm. only given the stuff that, that yeah, it helps us a little bit, but it still keeps them in control. And so that's yeah. what I worry about is, is like things like AI is going to help these people uh, develop and research whatever they've already been doing for a long time. And a lot of it's really scary, you know, mm-hmm. like with CERN and all that, they're just going to mm-hmm. get a spe- It's like the little racetracks when you were a kid and you had the hot wheels yeah. racetracks. Yes. Same thing. They're going around at normal speed, but now they're, we're getting ready. They're going to hit that boost in the track. And sometimes mm-hmm. you stay on the track. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you stay on, you get through the finish line and other times your mm-hmm. car just goes, whoa. It goes all over the place, and that's what I worry about. They're, they got the steering wheel, man. We're just yeah. we're in the trunk, trapped, yeah. and we have no idea yeah. where we're even going. You're, you're such great analogy, and I, I kind of think of it also like being on an airplane, and your airplane's been hijacked, and they're in the cockpit, and they've locked the door. 
and they're flying the plane and they they're gonna they're bound and determined to crash it and 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 everyone's just trying to figure out like how do we get the door open you know can we get can we regain control of the cockpit yeah and um, in my book, I use that a similar analogy. How you use the racetrack, I use a roller coaster. Oh, like that's going, great! <laughs> we're on a roller coaster, and it's and it's pitch black. Yes, and you can't even see the track, right? Exactly. And you're flying around these curves, and and it, in in a sense, it's a kind of exhilarating at times and terrifying at other times because you don't know, like, am I gonna am I gonna fly off the Am I going to fly off when I'm going around the bend here, or or is this going to end up like in a brick wall where I'm we're going to go straight off this roller coaster? We're just going to hit this, go full force into this brick wall. Exactly. Look, technology is the gingerbread house from Hansel and Gretel. It is. It looks amazing. It looks delicious. It's so beautiful. It it's convenient. Mm-hmm. It helps us in so many ways. I mean, look, communication. This is number one, fundamental. Me and you, we wouldn't be able yeah. to talk. If it wasn't for the technological advancements that we currently have. So, so it absolutely is a double-edged sword. The problem is, is we don't have a weapon. We don't have access to the same weapons. You know, the technology, it's not like me and you could go develop. Well, I'm sure you're smarter than me, but I couldn't go and develop. I I doubt that. (laughs) I couldn't go and develop a Skype. I couldn't go and develop a, a way to communicate with individuals all around the planet. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all this stuff that as technology just continues to grow and grow and grow, we become more and more disconnected from our true origins, our true power and our true power lies within not to be all hippy dippy, but Mm -hmm. our true, our true power resides in the natural energy. Yes. You know, of the cosmos, the universe, the planet, all of it. I mean, you can see it in the universe. You can see how powerful things are that, that, you know, ground each other together and, and form and, and it's, it's incredible. And so to think that all of this technology, as great as it is to be able to help us communicate with each other and, and, you know, microwave burritos at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, it's, it's disconnected, uh, us from our longevity as a hum- human species. So true, so true. I, and and what you just said, it it, it 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 gave me a flashback to the Garden of Eden, and it, to the Tree of Knowledge. Yeah. And you, you use that kind of alleg- allegory that, like, you know, once we were exposed to that, like things really didn't go too well for us. Yeah. And going back to the Book of Enoch, when the in that when allegedly the, the 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 watchers came down and they shared with us forbidden knowledge well according to that belief things haven't gone too good for us sure. since that time and um yeah you you raise such a, a good importance of just reconnecting and grounding ourselves in back into nature uh, because we do have all these powerful tools around us but uh for many of us it takes us away from that connection that we have to the earth and i can't tell you ben how grounding it is for me to several times a week throw on my backpack and go to the woods near my house and just get out and I think the Japanese call it uh, forest bathing I think oh. is what they call it and, and just get out into nature and breathe the clean air and just observe all the, the beautiful trees and the grass and the water and just um, get away from the technology and, and get out and, and, and ground yourself in nature. And I really think it is a double-edged sword. Like you said, it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's taken us away, taken us away from that. What do you, um, to go back to kind of the ancient, uh, cultures and all that type of Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, 
there's a lot of theories that there was a lot of psychedelic use in ancient cultures Mm -hmm. that in some of the carvings, in fact, it looks as though they're carrying around a a shamanic bag of some kind. Um, and that's what really helped. I mean, even you have the stoned ape theory, you know, Mm -hmm. of like, that's what we found psychedelic mushrooms. And that's when we first looked up to the stars and that kind of led us, but uh, that's a whole nother thing. But right. Do you, you know, do you subscribe to that idea that potentially there were mind expanding thing? Obviously not for the recreational purposes that a lot of people use them mm-hmm. for now. Uh, yeah. In ways to be able to expand their minds and, and touch something. Absolutely. I do think that's a, a definite possibility. I think that that has happened. Um, in fact, I was riding the bus home from work the other day and I heard a gentleman uh, sitting next to me was having a conversation with another guy and he's an artist and he was talking about this subject and uh, just what you mentioned, how, um, yeah, like artists and uh, other p- potential advances that we've had in our civilization might have been the result of these mind-expanding, you know, uh, whether it's using psychedelics or, uh, you know, other processes to... Um, to help us develop. And yes, I do. I do think that that is a distinct uh, possibility. I think it has happened for sure. And in fact, yes, you're talking about the little bags on some of these statues. Uh, Yeah. I think I saw some in uh, ancient going back to ancient Samaria. In fact, some of the Anunnaki uh, depictions where they have the winged, uh, they have winged and like the bird head and they have their little satchel bag. And yet you can go to South America and you can see some statues there of these look like these giant statues and they have a little satchel bag that looks very similar. Um, So yeah, cross-culturally and yeah, that could very well have been um, psychedelics in those, in those, in those little bags. And I I know Graham Hancock talks about that. I know he's experimented with ayahuasca um, and whatnot. So yeah, I totally, I totally believe in that, that possibility. I definitely want to put it out there that I want people, if they ever do, because look, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but Mm -hmm. if you ever do, go to a good source. You know, like Graham Hancock always emphasizes the fact that he went to like a clinic of some kind, some kind of place where there were people there that helped guided Mm -hmm. you. It's not something you should do in a basement with a bunch of buddies. I'm not telling you what to do. But if you really want to actually experience something that is, you know, akin to what these ancients were experiencing. It's all about place and setting. And so, so that's a big part of it. So I just want to throw that out there. You know, don't, don't go buying DMT off the internet and, you know, think all of a sudden that you're, you know, you're a shaman and, you know, all this Mm -hmm. stuff that gets you into trouble. Um, You know, there are places now that are popping up that you can actually go Mm -hmm. and have an experience um, that gives you the same answers that a lot of these uh, a lot of these people say ancient cultures had but it's really fascinating stuff to think about it is extremely it's extremely fascinating stuff and you know there's a cultures throughout the world have have their own uh, methods to to access these altered states of consciousness I, you know when i think of native americans um they have a number of different um processes they they use whether it's a sweat lodge or whether it's a vision quest yes and some of these rituals you know there some of them could be very trying and and hard on the body and you know and that's why what you said is good that if if someone wants to explore any of these to to try to do it in a more of a safe um controlled environment now for myself i've never 
never done anything like psychedelics, nor I never had any interest in, but I've always been interested in psychology and I studied hypnotherapy, clinical hypnotherapy. And so there was there were times where I practiced uh, self-hypnosis um, and other forms of uh, meditation that would help me to alter my, my states of, of consciousness. And to me, that was very fascinating. And that's how that's kind of how I did my own personal um, exploration in that area. That's cool. I mean, I just I just find it fascinating to think uh, again, it really ties into just the multicultural aspects of these things that seem to be a commonality, you know, as well as the uh, the belief in the multiple gods and the reptiles, uh, you know, the 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 serpents and the dragons and stuff. It's just mm-hmm. it's so fascinating. The uh, the interconnections that there were. But uh, so what so what do you have? Um, so your book Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely getting it. Going to read it. I recommend everybody. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you a free copy. Oh my god, that'd be amazing. Everything. That'd be so amazing. Yeah, just, yeah, send me your send me your address. And, I will. Yeah, I love, Thank you so much. I, I I I would love to read it. Um. So what do you yeah. have planned for uh, where? What are you doing next? Well, uh, right now I'm just really uh, trying to promote my book. Um, I'm a self-published author. Nice. And so I don't have anyone helping me. So yeah. it's it's all it's all on me. And um, I've recently discovered that I love to do podcasts. Um, this is all new to me. I'm very comfortable. I just love uh, having great conversations like with your people like yourself. And um, so I'm just focusing right now on, on, on really getting out there and, and sharing my research and, and hearing what other researchers have to say and just love these mind-expanding uh, conversations. You know, it gets us to think uh, so much bigger, you know, it gets us to think, like you said, you know, going back to some of the early questions that our philosophers from early times, like, you know, who are we, where are we going, you know, where do we come from, you know, uh, these, these really big questions. So, yeah, I'm just right now, I'm, I'm doing a lot of promotion on my book. Um, I want to start writing again, though. I want to I do a companion book, and I have a number of different subjects that I would like to include in the book and expand on, you know, some of the subjects that I cover in my first book. Uh, it, you know, Red Hair Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries, it deals not only with, with giants, but it uh, talks about the little people. It talks about the Flores Hobbit discovery in Indonesia. It gets into the elongated skull people of Peru. Gets into out of place artifacts like the uh, uh, Acambaro figurines that I briefly talked about, and also the Ica stones in Peru. Um, talk about the ET races. So just a number of just different fascinating, uh, fascinating topics. So I will definitely write another book. I've just got to awesome. find the energy to to break away from the promotion that I'm doing now and and start to write. And it's already started. I I just in a casual conversation with a with a a coworker the other day. He goes, Floyd, did you hear about that discovery in Africa? About the, they think that it could be, um, it could be Atlantis, and I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. and, he, and he's like, pull up Google Earth, and then he gave me the name. I don't remember the name of the place. The Rickshard structure or something yes, like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He said Google Earth that, and then I Google Earth it, and then you could see the concentric rings, and and um, he said also too that allegedly like King Solomon was doing mining in that in that area of Africa. Um, it's just amazing. Like there's so much um, information that is that is surfacing that it's, that's out there. So automatically, I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. I definitely want to write about Atlantis in my second book, and I'm definitely going to do more uh, research onto this uh, this new discovery. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, Jimmy Corsetti that I mentioned earlier of uh, Bright mm-hmm. Insight on YouTube has mm-hmm. done a ton of shit on this Rickshart structure or whatever it's called. Wow. Uh, he I does a phenomenal job. Phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, he's great. And then, of course, I think Graham Hancock has touched on it oh, uh, somewhat great. as well. Yeah. Um, Randall Carlson, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, Name sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, so him and Graham Hancock have really kind of teamed up because Randall Carlson's work in what's called the Younger Dryas Impact Theory. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that? It mm-hmm. kind of coincides with the floods and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff from ancient cultures. They teamed up because their work, uh, Graham Hancock's work highlighting these ancient cultures and what may have wiped them out and stuff, coincides mm-hmm. with the timeline that Randall Carlson has come up with Uh, based on the evidence from core samples and whatnot. And his work in looking at the land and showing what looks like giant wave beds, you know, like you would Mm -hmm. get in a a river or something, Mm -hmm. that riddle the Pacific Northwest uh, Mm -hmm. from up high when you look. It just looks exactly like when you're on shore and you see how the waves come up and create those little lines in the sand. Mm -hmm. Um, But hundreds of feet. And so, wow. it, it, as he says, it, it is clear evidence that uh, a gigantic uh, water form thousands of miles uh, high, potentially, um, washed through this area, completely restructuring the landscape. And so it's Incredible. fascinating stuff. So I, I love looking into all that. Um, but yeah, it's it's the definitely the ancient stuff, the old stuff, the giant bones and the mm-hmm. and the ancient structures, the idea of ancient technology. That's what gets me going so much because as I said before, it's just undeniable. Yes. You know, whereas these days you can poke a hole in a lot of stories. You know, you mm-hmm. can you can there's very little evidence coming out of a lot of this stuff. Um, but man, the stuff they continue to unearth uh, and look at that really just shows we don't know shit. Uh, and we don't. No. And so it's just I can't wait to see. I really hope it's in our lifetime that that mm-hmm. they they finally get to this stuff where places like the Smithsonian and just the government as a whole has no choice but to be like, just let them have it. <laughs> I am I'm I am with you. It's I kind of use the analogy of like a dam. Yeah. And the dam has cracks in it. Yeah. And more and more and more cracks. And the more of these discoveries that come that come forth, it creates another crack. And they're just trying to put their fingers in the holes and try to plug it up. But sooner or later, it's going to get to the point where it's just they can't contain it anymore. Yep. And eventually the dam will break. And like you had mentioned, Ben, that the, this knowledge, this information um, will be revealed to the public, in which many of us have already had an idea that, you know, of its existence. But for a whole lot of other people that are exposed to it, it's, it's going to be uh, – they're going to have maybe a, a harder time transitioning because maybe a lot of the beliefs uh, that they have, um, it will affect, it'll affect them. It will affect the way they look at their world. But isn't that exciting? I mean, it is exciting. It's so exciting it to think is. about. Uh, it, I mean, look, you know, not to be a douche, but fuck those people. Look, I, I you know, <laughs> right? I, I want to know, man. I think those yeah, of us that too. we, you, as a human, how could you not want to know? Yeah, uh-huh. how could we, you not we, want? Yeah. It's just, it's crazy to me to think that there's people out there just like I don't care, I don't care. Exactly. It yeah. just blows I, my mind. Yeah, I think we just have that. Spark within us, or most of us do, that we just we want to know these things. It's it's innate, yeah. it's innate in us. Well, it just it builds up. You know, we have this 
tiny glimpse, and we don't even know if it's accurate, this tiny mm-hmm. glimpse of what, what humans are, the history of humanity. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as we've pointed out, you've pointed out that there are so many things that just take that and make you go, well, that's not accurate, so what else isn't accurate? Mm-hmm. You know, so now you have to go through the whole thing, and, and that's what makes people question everything. I think that's a big key going back into why the turmoil around the world. I think mm-hmm. a big thing that happened, as you, as you know, is uh, faith in institutions. Faith mm-hmm. in what we've known our world to be structured with is crumbling. And with that faith comes, you know, kind of all the stages of grief. Yeah. You know, you're going to have point. angry people. You're going to have sad people. You're going to have people in denial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, people that and, try to bargain. That's right. And, and so... You know, I've tried to be as understanding as I can. Mm-hmm. I was pretty angry at the beginning of the pandemic stuff, what was going yeah. on, you know, me through too. this whole course of time. And it made me angry at other people. Um, mm-hmm. But I had to realize, you know, this is what made me realize is that everybody's going to go that your world view has died. Mm-hmm. What you knew the world to be made up has died, whether you're looking at it straight on the way a lot of us are or not. Mm-hmm. It has mm-hmm. made you look at things differently. And, and yeah. because of that, again, people are going to react differently. And, uh, and so you can't hate people for how they grieve. You just have right. to try and understand what they're going through. Um, exactly. Of course, those people that are using that to capitalize, mm-hmm. well, you need to call those people out. But the yes. majority of people are simply struggling with this reality. And, and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get through. So we just need to be understanding and realize that um, that keep people like you are great because you keep putting the evidence out there. You just keep Mm -hmm. showing it. Hey, this is what I think. Hey, this is what it looks like. And that's Mm -hmm. what it's going to take. That's where independent journalists came from. That's where a lot of the independent, like you had said, the, the archeological groups that are, that are doing independent research. That's Mm -hmm. why that popped up is they saw a need. So I see it as a good thing. It's, it's bad as far as what they're doing, you know, these, these institutions and people that are trying to control us, but it's good as well. Because those mm-hmm. of us that are hip to the groove, man, uh, we're yeah. going to be enlightened. We're not going to take yeah. it as a, as a, we're not going to take it laying down. We're not going to uh, roll over and be depressed. Um, we're going to trudge on and we're going to keep sh- throwing it out there to the people that want to know. So I appreciate people like you um, and Graham Hancock and, and all these people that, that do this work uh, because I'm not smart enough to do it. And so I'm very thankful for people like you that are so able to put it in a comprehensive manner that makes it fun to learn, fun to read, and to go over. And so uh, I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate you coming on. Oh, my gosh. It's been so fun. It seems like we've been on here maybe 10 or 20 minutes. I could <laughs> I know, could, right? I could go on and on and on. And yeah. uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for giving me the platform to, to share some of my research and um, love the, love your questions and love your, your, your feedback and just your perception. I mean, I think that's what we really need to do. We need to come together. Um, there's been so much division in the world and I believe the elites are creating the division, you know, the whole theory divide and conquer. And I think we really do need to, to come together and kind of do our best to put aside our differences and, and, and come together um, but this has just been a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity. Um, if anyone is interested in purchasing my book, you can go to bookbaby.com book and they have a bookshop 
on there, and it's the title of the book is The Red-Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries. Um, it's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, I would appreciate it though if you are interested in purchasing it to go through Book Baby because I'm a self-published author and Book Baby really supports self-published authors. Um, so that would be fantastic. I also have a website, theancientgiants.com. And on that website, there there is a page on there that kind of gives you a little snippet of each of the chapters of my book to kind of give you a general idea of, uh, of what's in there. That's awesome. But I appreciate your support and thank you and thank all your guests for taking their time to, to listen to this podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. I mean, I would love to have you on again. I mean, I, I, I oh, definitely... Any, any- Anytime. I mean, there's so many aspects. I'll, I'll send you a copy of my book and um, there's really a lot of different facets to it. And we can have, you know, do a whole show just on the, on the whole, uh, the, the, the reptilians, yeah. you know, the dragon, the dragon bloodlines. We could do a whole show just on the little people. And uh, I mean, you could, you can, there's so much. We, we just scratched the surface. I think we yeah. got, we got in definitely deeper than many of the other interviews that I've done so far. Um, but really this scratches the surface. Well, I love it, man. I want to keep digging. So we're, we're, we have to do this again. I don't see it as an option. We have to Floyd. So, uh, thank you so much. (laughs) I'll keep twisting if need be, but, uh, you send me your contact info, your address, and I'll get you out a book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And, uh, and everybody go buy that book. I'll have links in the show notes so y'all can, and I'll make sure and link it to uh, book baby and I'll have your website in there as well. So people can check you out. Do you have a social media? Do you have anything like that? Do you want people to go to? Um, I, I, I just started working on a, on a YouTube channel. Okay. Um, um, you can just find me. You can just go to YouTube and just put Floyd Wills, like Perfect. ancient giants, and you can you can pull up my channel. I just started it, so I've never never done a YouTube channel before. So I'm like a I'm like a ball lost in tall weeds. So <laughs> I'm kind of kind of figuring things out as I go along here. That's cool, man. I'm excited for you. Well, that's so awesome, and I can't wait for you to write your next book. Uh, and uh, we definitely got to do this again for sure. Sounds fun. I've it's been a pleasure. Well. I had a blast. What a phenomenal conversation. Uh, I love the way we do these because I never know where it's going to go. I mean, I have some questions prepared here and there, but nothing compared to where we went, and I love that. He's so knowledgeable. We just talk about anything. I I know we're going to do this again. I really hope we do it sooner rather than later, but, man, what a great guy. Uh, I love talking to him. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as well. But, uh what do you think about all this? Where do you land on all this? Are you a believer? Are you a skeptic? Are you still on the fence? I would love to know. I would love to know how you feel about all this. Um, again, go check out his book, um, The Red-Haired Giants of Lovelock Cave and Other Ancient Mysteries. Uh, all the links will be in the show notes for uh, bookbaby.com and, of course, his uh, website, which is uh, theancientgiants.com. Go check all that out. Follow Floyd. Get his book. I love this man, and I can't wait to have him on again so we can have another great conversation. I know we're going to deep dive into a whole bunch of stuff, super knowledgeable, and uh, I'm kind of a dumbass, so I just like to discover. I think I think we'd have so much fun doing that. So, Anyways, but uh, again, let me know what you thought. Uh, reach out. If you have stories, you have experiences, you just want to have a conversation, you want to let us know what's up, what you think about the show, text or call 208-477-1288 and also email I want to believe 115 at gmail.com. Uh, but 
as is every single episode, they are all brought to you by the Tinfoil Militia members who support this podcast with their monthly sustained donations. You could be one of them, but here they are. I believe I see militia forming. Tinfoil Militia. Stop, militia! The Tinfoil Militia. I joined the militia, but why would you? What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. Casey Armadillo, Michael Ralston, Rihanna Little, the OG supporter, designer, tinfoil, hat wearing Aaron Rice, Jesse, Jet Life Teague, Michael Benavides, Carlton Turner, Matthew Morfitt, Morgan, Nathan Boldly Gone Higby, and of course, Edwin Everhart, who's got his own podcast, Strange Circumstances. Go check that out. It's a doozy. But otherwise, I love you all. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, we are moving towards the value-for-value value model, a.k.a. the Triple T's, invented and perfected by the podfather Adam Curry of the No Agenda Show. I love them. Uh, the Triple T's, time, talent, and treasure. Donate your time, donate your talent if you have skills, whatever, to help the show grow, add value, add content. That helps us. And then, of course, uh, if we make you laugh, if we make you think, if we taught you something, I don't know. Um, If you like it, you love the show, and you want to show your support, throw that into a number and send it back our way. For now, there's a number of ways you can do it. You could support on patreon.com slash podcast. You can also, also buy us a Romulan Ale. You could do that, too. So there's a number of ways you could support. You could uh, buy merch, which, uh, by the way, thanks to Casey Armadillo, who's going to be taking over the merch for us. Uh, Thank you so much. But otherwise, um, go check it out. Number of ways to do this. So help us out. Help show the grow. Be a part of the tinfoil militia. Um, You can also just give a direct donation. There's all kinds of great ways. And if you don't know, if you're not sure you want to support the show, but you're not sure how to do it, just hit us up again in the show notes, ways to do that. You can hit us up and ask us, hey, what's the best way we could help you, your show grow or help out value? And I will tell you, I will be very honest with you and tell you how you can do so. Uh, but again, all donations, all donations, all my loyalty, all my respect. And of course, you get shout outs on the show, permanent place in my heart and at HQ. Uh, remember, sharing is caring, so spread us like gossip. Just take that URL, slap it anywhere, um, and we do these things weekly. So don't miss uh, don't miss next week when we come out with uh, yet another episode. I'm not even sure what it's going to be about yet, but I know we're going to have one, so it's going to be great. Uh, again, if you have stories, experience, you just want to reach out, call or text that number, 208-477-1288. Email, I want to believe 115 at gmail.com. Every donation, leave us a note. We'll read it on the show. We love you. We want to support you as well. So if you have a business, you have something that you do on the side, uh, include it in the note. We'll give you a shout out. We'll give you a little, uh, a little, uh, what's that called? A sh- uh, uh, selfless plug. I don't know, whatever it is. Anyways, we'll give it a plug. But until then, make sure, get merch. Be a tinfoilist, join the cool kids, and remember. Whoops, wrong one. (laughs) Remember, stay elevated, keep your eyes to the skies, and watch out for the government. They're shoisty bastards. Bye, 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 bye.